Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest this week is Lubo Smith, the CEO and co-founder of STRV, a successful design and engineering agency. Lubo has lots of experience in the Web3 space, building both client and in-house projects. In our conversation, we talk about the balancing act of building a Web3 game, why he's excited about ticketing as a mainstream use case for blockchains, and why it is not Web3 technology, but applications that should get all the hype. Please enjoy my conversation with Lubo Smith. Thank you for joining me today. As someone who runs a software engineering and design agency, I want to dive into that word agency because I know some people like it and some people have a problem with it. You both are building your own business as well as interacting with many different businesses from huge brands to Microsoft and Barry's Bootcamp to smaller companies that are coming to you looking to help build. From that perspective, what have you learned about the different brands as you've transitioned from the Web 2 world to now the Web 3 and straddling both of them at the same time? Thank you so much for the invitation to the podcast in the first place. So you touched on the word agency. It's not my favorite word. It's probably not the way how I would describe SDRV. And do we do agency type of a business? Yes, 100%. But I think the word itself comes with some stigma and some perceived behavioral patterns that are not that familiar to me or definitely not that familiar to SDRE as a team and as a company. So I don't necessarily like that word. At the same time, we engage with a huge variety of different kinds of businesses different kinds of partners. And if you want to run a consulting business, that's how I would define what we do, right? We work for others and we get paid for it. We provide software design and engineering services to be more specific. I think that if you want to be doing that, you truly have to enjoy the mission of helping others achieve their successes and be cool with them taking all of the credit for that. When we work with a small startup, we see them grow and we see them exit. The only thing that we get out of that is 
the money that they pay us to deliver great work. And I often get asked by our former clients and new clients whether I have ever regretted not taking an equity offer or something. The reason why I enjoy the space is that I love helping others achieve their goals. And for me, yes, we are making it a good business for ourselves. It's very linear. The formula for running our type of business is fairly simple, but it's the approach to providing value and helping others to reach their goals. That's what really, really powers me on that. So let's just poke at that a little bit more. This word agency, what is it that you don't like about the common sentiment towards that business model? I think the common sentiment is that you are trying to lock yourself in a position that you will be collecting money for mediocre work and you are building obstacles like a vendor lock-in for others to be strongly tied to you and then you are squeezing the profits out of that. That to me is something that I picture when I hear the word agency in the corporate setting. We work a lot with startups and smaller companies, but for us, the approach is that if we establish a relationship, we want to make sure that it only lasts as long as both parties are enjoying it and both parties are seeing the value in that. And I don't think that by definition, that's what you imagine when you say the word agency. Yeah, it's funny. When I started the company, a friend of mine who had also started a successful company and had a successful exit, I had asked about using agencies for different parts. And the advice that he was given was don't do it, own everything in-house, do everything on your own. But every founder eventually uses an agency and then tells the next founder not to. And so there's definitely a bad depiction around it for at least on the startup side of control and outsourcing and some of the negative things that maybe the industry unfortunately became known for. To that, what I would like to say, what we fight with in the industry is that there's a lot of bad actors. There's a lot of people that try to scam you, that try to overpromise and underdeliver. And I think that in the end, that's what we fight with. And that's what we end up seeing with our engagements. We have potential clients reaching out to us and saying, yes, we would like you to bid on this project. And we do that. And they are like, oh, we have decided to go with a cheaper option. And then they do that. And uh, six to 12 months later, you hear from some of them and they are like, oh, we got burned big time and it didn't really pay off. They come back and they ask us, would you be so kind to help us clean up that mess? And of course we say yes, that's why we are here. But I think that's the bit of stigma that we have here. But as you can imagine, I'm pretty passionate about it. Well, it's such a hard pricing problem of trying to understand how do you align interests, even the word agency, like agent versus principal. And how do you align it, whether you're hiring a technology firm or a contractor to build something? When someone's product, the quality of their service is unknown, some people anchor on price. So sometimes they think, okay, this is the highest price, so therefore it's the best quality. It doesn't mean it's any better. So it's a hard thing to define for parties that have never worked together before. It's almost impossible to really, with 100% clarity, say, what's going to be behind that price tag. 
And every company has different approach and every company has different pricing models and so on. So what it really comes down to is to break this down to individual components and seeing what's behind every number. What I always say that when companies are reviewing different kinds of proposals, the devil is in the details. It's not the price. You need to look at what are the references, what are the estimated allocations for the project, what roles and how much time are they going to spend on it. And it goes on and on and on. And if you truly want to evaluate, you need a whole lot of details, but very rarely you have all of those details available. So when you are taking on a new customer, can you tell like this is going to be a huge pain in my ass? This customer is asking for one thing, but you know that it's going to expand and they're going to assume and there's expectations aren't set, right? Can you tell when you have a bad customer? I think after doing this for more than 12 years, I think I have a good sense. And usually the most problematic customers are the ones that pay the least, which is, I think, quite common. But if someone is questioning every single thing, not putting the trust into the relationship, one of our core principles at SDRV is trust in good intentions. And if we don't see that from the client side, then it's also a warning sign for us that something might not be going the right way. So you talked about an industry that has a lot of bad actors and grifters. It does sound a lot of what happens in the crypto industry at times. There's bad actors, bad things have happened. So what was it that sparked your interest in kind of the Web3 crypto space? Well, I would say that in Web3, the situation is way worse than when it comes to just technology. I think in Web3, it's the gold rush, or definitely it's been the gold rush for the past two years or so. And what interests me on the space is mostly the power of the technology that I see behind it. But at the same time, what I've been doing for the majority of my career was building great user experiences. I don't go and talk about what's the technology that is used on the background. Yes, I'm a tech person. I'm very interested in all those cutting edge things. But I think that in the end, it's the user experiences that I like the most. But what brought me to the space was, okay, I believe in decentralization and I think that blockchain can be used to a lot of interesting use cases, but it should not be the word that will make the waves. It should be the applications of it that people will find useful. You started STRV Labs. This is separate and distinct from STRV, your original company, to focus on Web3. And is that all in-house production studio or are you still partnering with larger brands and helping them in the Web3 space? STRV Labs, we don't only do Web3-related projects, but it's more of an internal incubator for our own ideas, our own products, and some of them are Web3-related, some of them are not. But I think one aspect of running an agency-type of a business, the only way how you can scale it is with basically rates, 
amount of people that you have on the team. And that's about it. It's very linear. And if you don't necessarily enjoy having masses of people around, we are a company of about 200 people. And do I desperately feel that I need to get to a higher number, 500, 1000, something like that? I don't find it appealing at all. I think that more people creates more problems and that type of business does not grow exponentially. So naturally you start thinking about how do I scale up my efforts? How do I take it to the next level? And that's where the products that we are building on our own come in. And throughout the history of the company, we have always wanted to build our own products. We have done many, many attempts to do so. Some of them were fairly successful, some of them not so much. But I think it's a very common thing for an agency type of a business to try to progress and either transition to being a product company or do both at the same time. And I think in our case, we grew the company that much that it's a beast of its own, but it gives us the power to invest into our own products. And some of them we have been managing and operating for many, many years. And there's a lot of new ones that are in the works. And as you mentioned, some of them are in Web3. And the reason for that is that it also serves for us as a great way to test out new areas of technology and Web3 is definitely one of them, similar to AR these days and AI and all of that. I want to dive into more of some of the STRV labs work in Web3. So there's Scavengerland, which is the gaming studio, Enter, NFT ticketing. And then I have to ask about live penalty. I don't even know if there's anything Web3 about it, but I just think it looked insane to me. So I just wanted to hear more about it. Let's start with Scavengerland. That's gaming and Web3 has been a big theme for people. They think that there's a huge opportunity there. What are you seeing? It's actually very interesting. And I'll probably surprise you. So we have started uh, Scavengerland with the inception of Web3 gaming with the goal to basically have the in-game items on chain and leverage the whole power of the Web3 world. But two of my co-founders from SDRV are leading that project. Throughout the year and a half now, almost close to two years, we have realized that there's a lot of downside going with the Web3 theme as well. And so the major focus right now is to make it a killer mobile game first. And whatever is going to come after that, it's going to be second. But we have shifted from building a web-based crypto-related game to Unity and running it on mobile devices, because in the end, that's where the gamers are. The mobile platforms are not yet ready for a big influx of Web3 technology. So we are taking a little bit of a detour from the Web3 world with Scavengerland, to be honest. So you mentioned that there's a lot of downside in Web3 gaming and your exploration of it. Talk to me, what are the downsides? One great example is the scarcity of items and the management 
of the assets in terms of like how much they are valuable and so on. So let's imagine that you have a game that scales extremely fast and there's a big demand. You have some in-game items, cosmetic items as NFTs and people can trade them. And as there is more and more people entering the game, there is a big demand. But what we have seen with a lot of games that there is not an infinite amount of users that you can pour into the game. And the sustainability of it is going to be hindered tremendously once the growth stops. When you start stagnating, then there is going to be an issue. And as you are basically making it wide open that people can trade those assets, then there is limited way for the game owner to introduce new ones because people just don't need them. There is already enough circulating in the ecosystem so people will not go and buy versus if you go with the traditional route, you can be doing it over and over again. And that's why I think for the games like Fortnite and so on, there is these off-game markets where people trade different things and I find it very interesting, actually, but we are basically trying to push the road of building a traditional mobile game with in-app purchases that people will use to progress in the game. Two of my co-founders building it. I am just sitting on the sidelines cheering for them. A little bit more on bias, I suppose. To finish off on gaming, in the example you gave, where we've had Axie Infinity as these really large games or even CryptoKitties before that, that had these booms and bust cycles. One consistent problem is this idea of how the economics or the monetary balance works. So the example you gave is if you have too few items, then the price goes up and there's a scarcity problem. And then if you inflate and you have too many, then price is a problem. So there's always trying to create this balance between the collectors, the speculators, and the gamers. And things like Pokemon have really figured out a great way to get this done. Do you think it's a problem of figuring out the monetary balance of how the supply, demand, and balance is handled? Or do you think Web3 Gaming is going to unleash a completely different form of game in the future? I still believe hugely in Web3 Gaming. I think that there just needs to be the right tokenomic implemented. And I think that we have seen a lot of bad examples and But that does not mean there will be no future for it. I think that it comes down to figuring out what's the right tokenomic, making sure that the actors that are participating are the actors that you want to have participating, that you have gamers in the game, you don't have speculators and investors and other people, because then it really messes up with the whole ecosystem. And then the third piece that I would say would be that there needs to be enough of the infrastructure support. And right now, what's happening on mobile devices when it comes to Web3 is extremely limited. And I think it's the situation is getting better on desktop because there's a lot more availability. But to me, it feels like especially Apple has not even acknowledged that there is some Web3 movement (laughs) and that they would be providing some support for that. And I understand why. I feel like it's really up to them to decide. But on another note, that's yet another reason why I was interested in entering the space. Because I have a decent background in building great user experiences, as I mentioned earlier. And this is what I'd like to bring to the Web3 space and 
this is touching the, I believe, second project that you wanted to chat about. Before we move there, I want to stay on Apple for a second because it's hard for me not to hear that and feel there's a deep sense of irony. The Apple ecosystem, to me, is the most centralized thing on the planet. Buy our hardware, use our services, use our cloud. You want to talk to your parents. They're going to need to be on the blue, not the green, on text. It's like the definition of centralization. So if Web3 Gaming, in order to survive, needs a centralized party, doesn't that in some way break a lot of the narrative that the whole point was to circumvent the intermediary and go from game designer to mega fan directly? It does break the narrative hugely. And on one side, I am a huge Apple fanboy. I buy all of their products. I love the ecosystem. But from the business standpoint, I believe it got out of hands that suddenly we have thousands or tens of thousands of businesses that are paying this huge cut to two companies in the world being Apple and Google. And do I thank them for the technology that they have built to allow us to do all of that? Hugely. I think that these are big shifts. Do I feel that it's right that suddenly everyone who operates on those platforms needs to pay this big cut out of their revenue to those companies, that to me does not feel right. And when we tie it with Web3, there's very strange guidelines when it comes to what's allowed and what's not, because the Web3 world is something that you can't really control, or at least it's very hard to control. That's why I'm very curious what's going to happen. I know that there is multiple lawsuits that are trying to tackle just this. And as much as I love Apple, I also feel for the other side, and I'm on the other side, I operate some of the businesses that pay part of those fees and it affects many of our clients. So for me, it's bittersweet, but I think that something needs to happen on that front. And do I feel that the Web3 movement should be ultimately coming into one centralized entity again? I don't think so. It seems a bit at odds with a lot of the ethos. I agree with you. If you tried to create that game and you didn't have Apple's distribution, the question is how many people would ever see it? So for all those people that have paid for those iPhones, that getting in the App Store is worth a lot of money. Maybe it's not 30% or whatever they're charging, but it's a significant amount of money, even if it feels exorbitant to the people paying it. Let's go to ticketing. One more thing that I think that over time, this is going to fade away or get lowered, but it's going to take a lot of time. Yeah, that can be the path. I think technology companies have gotten away with a lot more monopoly status than anyone ever anticipated. That maybe it's an oligopoly, but they have an amazing pricing power, which is why they're the most valuable companies in the world, because there's little to stop them. But I agree, over time, you'd like to think that competition or some sort of intervention will eventually bring the prices down, but who knows? We'll see. Enter, NFT ticketing. So ticketing is something near and dear to my heart. I have friends that are deeply in the industry, and so I've followed this business, I think, since college. I think that one of the first examples people use with NFTs that's a little bit more digestible sometimes in gaming, you can talk about the in-game skins or Fortnite. Another one is, well, when you buy this ticket, there's a lot there. That Taylor Swift sells a bajillion tickets and takes down Ticketmaster, but if all of her mega fans, they haul NFTs, 
and she could figure out who are the real fans that she could connect with them in a much deeper and perhaps different way than through centralized powers like Ticketmaster or Live Nation. So what are you guys trying to do with Enter? Going off what I said previously, that's where I saw the bigger opportunity was to dive into building a product that makes it easy for people to interact with what's happening on the blockchain. And for Enter, I think that ticketing is probably one of the greatest use cases for blockchain because ticketing can benefit from right away with like no additional features that would need to be built on top of it and so on. Basically, the validity of the tickets, the transfers, making sure that all of that is done in a secure way that you can enforce potentially royalties and you can control exactly as you mentioned, that the tickets get to the right hands. This was the initial idea. Something that also contributed to that idea was me going to a lot of Web3 events and realizing why are they looking up my name on a sheet of paper? And then I connect the two and I was like, okay, there's probably not a simple enough technology how to do ticketing on blockchain for people that are not the true degens. And that's where Enter comes in. I think that there is great players that focus on token gating and verifying that you own specific NFTs and so on. And there is tens of different projects that try to do something in NFT ticketing. And I think that, of course, we look at all of them. And what I always wanted to enforce is we don't want to go halfway. For us, every single ticket is an NFT. Everything that is happening needs to be on blockchain. I also wanted to go with a blockchain that is going to be widely supported. Also a blockchain that is going to have low fees. So it's not going to be expensive for users. And we have, for example, we have done events on Ethereum and these events get pricey because just like to distribute the tickets, you pay thousands of dollars and it makes no sense for a normal event. If you want this to be a legacy written on Ethereum blockchain, that's cool. But for normal events, it makes no sense. And then one of the other core elements of what we are building is that this is not meant for the Web3 enthusiasts. This is meant for every human being on the planet Earth to have the ability to leverage the technology without even knowing it. We want people to see Enter as any other ticketing service. And the beauty behind this is that we are fully on chain, but we do the heavy lifting on our side in terms of tech that people don't even know it. I think that you are very familiar with what level of complexity it is when you just need to interact with seed phrases, different kinds of crypto wallets and all of that. And I think you will never get the majority of the planet to do that. That's not the future of Web3. Maybe there will be a big portion of people that will have their hardware wallets, but the entry point just needs to be way, way easier. And that's what we are trying to do with Enter, to make sure that 
we fully leverage the power of blockchain, but we don't make it any more complicated for the end user. So which chains are you building on? You said you did Ethereum, but what are the other chains that you've built on for Enter? So the product is built as an EVM-compatible platform. So yes, we can support Ethereum. We do most of our stuff on Polygon. We have clearly identified and we made the right bet that Polygon would be the chain of adoption. That's where the masses can come in. Because it's EVM compatible, it's widely supported, but at the same time, low gas fees, great people involved. But we are supporting all EVM compatible chains. And is the idea to go after smaller events that aren't going to even consider a Ticketmaster to help issue tickets and say, for the crypto native or the Web3 crowd, this is better than coming in and me looking on a sheet of paper and saying, yeah, I'm going to check you in? The idea is not to go just after the smaller events, but go also after the bigger ones, especially like conferences or bigger music events that are not happening in those venues that are under an agreement with somebody, mostly with Ticketmaster, because they are play. They try to lock in the venues so they can go and charge their crazy fees with mediocre product. And I don't want to be like only saying bad things about them, but it's a different business model going through the venues and probably hard for us to make a leap in that sense right away. But there's a lot of big events that don't have that and they are of huge interest for us. But I think one of the other areas that we look for is how can we bring more? And that's where loyalty comes in because a lot of the musicians or different teams or leagues, they can hugely benefit with also connecting this with their loyalty program, for example, because that's where you identify your true fan. And that's where we see a lot of interest that it's not just ticketing, but it's also the pointers to loyalty and so on. Connect something for me here, which is that you have a view that people can't be doing seed phrases, that we have this abstraction theory, that we shouldn't be talking about blockchains and NFTs. We should talk about, here's your ticket, and it's on your phone, and you don't even know that it's on Polygon or whatever. How do you figure that out? And how do you handle that abstraction? Because I can imagine events like, look, we're trying to sell tickets and make this as great as possible. All the things you're talking about sound wonderful, but if I increase any friction between the event goer, and us, then that's risk. And I don't want to deal with that. I'd rather print them on a piece of paper, mail it as PDF, have a QR code, whatever. We know it's going to work and we know there's no friction. How do you handle that abstraction so we're not increasing the friction? This is a great point. And do I say that we are 100% there? No, really. I think this is something that we strive for. And we have a very decent chunk of this built already. We leverage custodial wallets for people. So you can come in, sign up with an email address or a phone number. You can pay with crypto. You can also pay with fiat with just your credit cards. The part where it becomes a bit tricky is on the flip side when you are entering the event because we want to stay true to our mission and we want to make sure that we validate the ownership 
against the data on blockchain in real life as you are entering the event. So for us, there is no way that we would be able to send you a ticket or a QR code into your email and tell you, this is what you need to get to that event. Because what if you take that and you share it with five of your friends or you just send it to someone else? So someone else has the ticket, but you have the NFT. We would be immediately breaking our promise. And that's where it gets really difficult. We right now have a mobile app where you verify the ownership of your wallets, even the custodial ones. And that uh, provides you a dynamic QR code. And with that, we can scan it and we can let you in to those events. But having an app creates an obstacle. As you mentioned earlier, you don't want to be increasing the friction. So what we are in the process of building right now and will be releasing very soon is that we will not have just the app, but you will also be able to do that on the website. So you'll be able to log in with your custodial wallet or with your crypto wallet to the website. And that way you will be able to do it on the go and you will not need to download anything. So we see this as a way how we can reduce the barrier, but we'll always look for improving the user experience further from there. And so when you talk to potential customers, whether they're musicians, sports teams, et cetera, what's some of the feedback that you got on what they like about it and some of their concerns relative to sticking with the status quo? I would say event planning takes a long time and in many of the cases, they already have some portion of the tickets out there and they are very much intrigued doing the ticketing through us, but mixing two ticketing providers is a mess. And we have done it with some events. It went okay, but after that event, when we did the retrospective, we were like, okay, we are really, really looking forward to the next one because it will be clean. It will be just one ticketing provider. One other downside, I would say, for a new company entering the space, the event organizers are used to having a lot of features at their disposal. And if you are a new kid on the block, you need to build all of that functionality. Otherwise, you will have no shot at success. And that takes time and effort. That's what we have been building for the past year. And I think that we, by now, have a very, very solid set of features that is appealing for many events. So actually, what we hear from the people that do organize an event on our platform fully is that they very much enjoy it. They find it simple and easy, and they like that it's all on blockchain and such. But yes, I think that there is always some downsides, right? Interesting. So let's talk about live penalty. Because when me and one of the pioneers, Colin, that prepared for Web3 looked at this, we were like, what is going on? So I think this is part of your AR play. How does live penalty work? There have been many, many pivots in that. Now I don't even know when it started. Three, four years ago. We have been playing with the idea for a little bit before we kicked it off. So it started as, uh, I'm not sure if you remember the app that was extremely popular for a little bit, HQ Trivia, where people would connect and would play live trivia, answering questions and 
there will be one person that will make it to the final round that would win an insane prize. It was a huge trend for a little while. And then even on the SDRV side, many people reached out to us that they wanted to do something like HQ trivia in different areas. And one of them was focused on weed and it was interesting. But the idea for Life Penalty was that it was an elimination game. So if you would make it to the last round, you would be directly controlling the machine. So you could pick where the ball shoots and then the machine would send the ball right there. And there was a goalkeeper and the referee live on stage. And that concept is great. It was amazing activation. I think that what proved not that viable was the financials of that whole thing, because this is an expensive operation. And so we turned it into, again, a mobile game <laughs> where we leverage all of the recording. Basically, every goalkeeper tries to catch 100 shots of a machine. So we have them in various different positions. So you can actually play the game against real goalkeepers. And there is a card collectability element. And as you can sense, this might be a perfect fit for Web3. But throughout the many pivots, we have not gone that route just yet. As you've looked back, you now have this Web2 agency, even though we don't like the word, but designing and helping and solving problems for other. And then this labs business, which is focused on it, what have been some of the lessons learned? Because I assume what you're trying to do with labs is you're the first on the frontier, you're playing with stuff, you're learning, you're failing quickly. And then you can bring that and explain that back to the big Web2 customers that are saying, should we be doing anything in this space? I think it goes both ways. One of the products that we have in STIV Labs, it's called Float. It's a breathwork application. And we have started it a little over a year ago. And for example, the way how it serves me in learning something from hands-on, building the product and marketing it back to our clients is that I can look at the budget. I can see how much we have spent on engineering and I can compare with us driving revenue. We have in-app subscriptions. And so I see the numbers. I see how much we are paying for user acquisition and I can go back and cross compare it with some of our clients. and where they are and tell them, okay, guys, you should probably be thinking a little lighter about building your MVP. It does not have to be something that costs million and a half. Uh, and then you basically have no money to send users to it. So I think it really helps me to find the balance both ways. But it also it means on the client side, I have insight into various industries. So I know what's happening in fintech. I know what's happening uh, with social media apps. I know what's happening in fitness. We have many automotive clients. So that informs me, okay, if we are to incubate a new product of ours, where are the gaps in the market? Where are the opportunities? One more thing that I would say to this is that if you want to be doing both, you also need to be able to draw a clear line that one side of the business does not interfere hugely with the other, right? I can't be taking people off our own products to put them on client projects and vice versa. 
So I need to make certain level of commitment and say, okay, this is what I want to do. This is the budget that it gets and fully stick with it. Otherwise, it is a huge mess. And I think that's been a lesson learned for myself and my co-founders because in the early days, that was not the case that we would have this line drawn and we would be exactly what I mentioned, that we would be leveraging our spare free people that did not have a project to build something that we felt would be our future success. But you don't really build anything meaningful unless you have a decent amount of focus. As a business that works with other brands, you get to pass judgment on things that work and things that don't work. Who in the Web3 space do you admire or do you think is building something the right way? Obviously, when I say Yuga, I think that they keep showing a very consistent level of delivering great things and truly understanding what it's all about with a big promise of building this MMORPG game. But I think that they are approaching it from the right way. And I can see your beautiful poster behind you. So it's a painting by Register Art. It's a four by four oil painting. It's lovely. So this is huge. I feel Yuga for Web3 is Apple for the tech world. But I think there is a lot of other smaller people that are influencing the space and that I really respect. And mostly on the artist side, Justin Aversano, I think that what he does in the Web3 space is great. And he really cultivates the community and he is the big proponent of more artists coming into the space. So I think that there is great collections of generative art that I really like. And I think squiggles are one of them. So there's a big inspiration. I think it's always the first movers in certain category and whether it's photography NFTs, generative art, or in PFPs, or building a game on the background of this whole movement. I think that's what sticks. That's what I find inspiring in terms of looking at others and what they do. So Luba, we always end these podcasts with the same question. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? In the next six months, I would say that it's likely going to be incremental improvements into the products that are in the works already. So definitely looking forward to doubling down on what we are building with Enter. Scoundrelland has not launched yet, so I definitely want the guys to make their first debut and launch the app. That would be lovely. So as I said, like incremental improvements in the next six months, I would like us to play a big role in the AR space and VR space with the launch of Vision Pro. So we are very actively looking into what experiences we could build there. And I think that the six-month timeline is pretty much aligned with when Apple is going to come out with the product. And I'm now giving a little bit of a sneak peek. Hopefully, many of our competitors are not listening, but I would like to start it with a big bank and we want to be ready for this. So we are already 
basically gearing up. We have the next six months to get ready. I think for the next six years, I would like us to be able to continuously identify the new technologies that will come out, that will be the ones that are going to massively scale and build up expertise in those areas and build out products and projects related to those. Because in the end, that's part of our long-term vision to make sure that we remain on the frontier of the technology. I think you will. Lubo, thank you very much for the time today. This has been a lot of fun. I have enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 